On that unforgettable day, Jesus seemed to be everywhere at once. He was flipping tables and benches, leaving a trail of chaos in his wake. Men shouted in surprise and anger as they clawed at the air, desperately trying to recapture doves Jesus just freed from their cages. Money changers crawled and grasped at coins scattered across the floor, trying to keep their profits from rolling out of sight. Jesus' disciples scrambled for cover and ducked as doves fluttered past. <sighs> the sound effects are free on this episode. Nobody wanted to be in Jesus' way as he rushed furiously around the court of the Gentiles. All eyes were focused on him. The indignation in his eyes mirrored the outrage in his heart at what was happening in the temple precincts, his temple precincts. Jesus took this personally. The disciples had witnessed something similar three years earlier when Jesus chased merchants and money changers out of the temple with a whip. But this call to repentance had not lasted. The religious profiteers returned, and so did Jesus. His passion for protecting the sanctity of the temple grounds had not wavered. At one time in Israel's storied history, sacrifices were brought and bought and sold, and they exchanged money at markets on the Mount of Olives. But the high priest Caiaphas, responding to some pressure from other Jewish leaders, granted permission for all these markets to be relocated to the court of the Gentiles on the temple campus overnight. A place that had been dedicated to prayer and praise and worship was transformed into a shopping center. Gentile worshipers were crowded out by greedy merchants. The Jewish leaders seemed to be all right with this devolution. In their eyes, these Gentile interlopers were unfit to set foot on the temple precincts anyway. But Jesus was incensed. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. He fumed, quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. He looked around, eyeing the money changers and merchants who were glaring at him with malicious expression. And then Jesus continued, But you have made it a den of thieves. Mark 11, verse 17. The disciples discovered that nothing seemed to make Jesus angrier than abuse and injustice, especially in the name of religion. They didn't realize their master would soon suffer even worse abuse at the hands of men who believed they were doing God's will. Reverence for the holy would soon become the pretense for the most horrible crime in history, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Jesus turned on his heel and strode out of the temple, and his disciples followed closely behind. Our God is a God of justice, and we're going to hear more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope you're having a wonderful February day. If you're listening to this later, it might even be November, but I hope you're having a wonderful day today, and you're listening to the God's Word for Life companion podcast. My name is LJ Harry. I'm happy to be your host. This podcast is a companion to the God's Word for Life lesson guide, small group guide, daily devotional guide, great opportunities for you to grow in your relationship with God. Today, we're taking a look at a lesson that is dated February 26, 2023, entitled a God of justice. And it stems from one of my favorite Old Testament verses, Micah 6, verse 8, where Micah the prophet wrote, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, if you just take a cursory view of the Bible, it reveals how much God cares about justice. The Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, appears over 420 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. It's frequently translated as judgment in the KJV. Believers should care about justice because God cares about justice. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 describes the Almighty by saying, All his ways are judgment, mishpat, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Psalm 146 verses 7 through 9, they elaborate on God's justice by declaring he upholds the cause of the oppressed. We see God's justice in his actions. Jesus performed many miracles for the benefit of the poor and the oppressed, including widows, those who were sick, societies, outcasts like lepers. The first miracle performed in the book of Acts was Jesus healing a lame beggar in Acts chapter 3. Jesus and his followers believed in and they practiced justice. Here's a question. Why do you think Jesus focused so much of his ministry on the poor and needy? And what implication does that have for us as his church carrying out his work today? As spirit-filled believers, we must be just. That includes giving people what they're due, whether that's punishment or protection or care, to quote from Timothy Keller. The book of Proverbs promotes the pursuit of justice in our daily life, including in the marketplace, the way we conduct business, the way we treat our employees, our employers, our customers, our vendors. We must be just. Proverbs 11 verse 1 reads, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, most of us, we no longer use weights and balances on the job. We use good old-fashioned cash. But there's a timeless call for honesty in business. In their day, they were using one weight to be able to say this is how much it's worth when they bought it, and another weight to say this is how much it's worth when they sold it. Sounds maybe a little bit like a shady business going on there. And so the Lord said, I want just weights. I want you to use the same weight when you buy it, use the same weight when you sell it. Christians, we shouldn't participate in business transactions that knowingly take advantage of others, especially the poor and needy. Some careers, they should just be off limits to believers for this very reason. Christians who serve in positions of leadership or authority, we must treat employees, co-workers, customers fairly, with respect, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of any personal disagreements or differences that may exist. We can't mistreat and abuse others and then expect to disciple them to Jesus. That doesn't work. So here's a very pointed question to you and to me. What does justice look like at your workplace? Maybe you work surrounded by apostolics or apostolics-to-be. Or maybe you work surrounded by atheists or agnostics. Or maybe you work surrounded by people of other religions and faith traditions. And yet justice looks the same. No matter what culture, no matter what faith tradition, justice looks the same. It looks a whole lot like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let's be just and treat others with respect, with kindness, as Jesus has, as Jesus would. Now, the prophet Micah, in the verse we read, asked a question many of us have asked before. What does God want from me? He asked it like this in Micah 6, verse 6, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And then he launched into a list of extravagant offerings and options. He basically was going to give God some choices. I, I, okay, do you want me to bring 
thousands of rams? Or what if I pour out 10,000 rivers of oil? Would that make you happy? He even asked, Lord, if, if you want my kids, you can have them. I'll sacrifice my own firstborn. How about the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There you go. But that's not what God wants. Micah's questions were rhetorical because God doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. We don't have access to 10,000 rivers of oil unless you work for BP and you might have access to that oil, but that's not the oil he was talking about, so maybe Bath and Body Works. But God isn't asking us to give what we don't have. He's not impressed either with an outward show of worship and sacrifice that tries to mask the stench of a disobedient heart. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah when he said of the religious leaders of his day, The people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart, oh, that's furlongs far from me. In vain they do worship me. Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9. Later in that selfsame gospel, Jesus confronted the Pharisees again about their practice of tithing on the very herbs they grew in their gardens. They were so proud of how much they tithed on even the little they had. Their fastidious approach to giving might have been commendable, but they were ignoring what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law, and those were judgment, mercy, and faith. Personal holiness and morality, those are important, absolutely, but they don't excuse us in a lack of care and concern for other people. Sacrifice in one area does not make up for disobedience in others. And then Micah answered his own question in Micah 6, verse 8. God has shown us what is good and what he requires to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. God is looking for a pure heart that serves God and serves others. In our Western culture, it's become popular to express good thoughts to other people, often via social media. It's kind of become the current substitute for, hey, I'm praying for you. But good thoughts, they only benefit the person who thinks them. Good words aren't really much more effective. Even prayer isn't a valid substitute when we could take some kind of a reasonable action to help. God requires us to do justly, not just think it, not just talk it, not even just pray justly, but to do justly. That may ring a bell. The New Testament writer James, he pointed out that if we meet somebody who lacks food and clothing, it's not really helpful to tell them, oh, well, God bless you, depart in peace. You be warmed and filled now. If you've ever been without no groceries and no money to buy groceries and no money to even get French fries at McDonald's, and somebody came along and said, oh, God bless you, you be filled, I'm praying for you, that doesn't make you filled But if they took you by the hand or gave you a gift card and said, hey, why don't you get something or here's some groceries, now that can make you filled. We don't have everything, but doubtless all of us have something where we can bless somebody and help them out in times where they need it. There's only one solution for an empty stomach, that's food. So James said, if you have the power to meet a need, but you refuse, then faith is dead. Now, if somebody is capable of meeting their own needs but refuse to do so because they're lazy, well, that's a whole other matter. You'll have to see the principle in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 about that one. But justice is an action. It's not a feeling. Justice involves rolling up our sleeves and getting personally involved in relieving the suffering of our world. Lisa Sharon Harper, co-founder and executive director of New York Faith and Justice, said, quote, Justice is a way of showing the world what heaven looks like. 
End quote. If we want to bring heaven to earth, let's start by pursuing justice. We recognize how merciful God has been to us personally. Thank God for it. Should produce the proper attitude we need to do the work of true justice. A true understanding of mercy will keep us from arrogantly dismissing others and others who are hurting as losers who just need to work a little harder, make better choices. Those who do justly know that if it weren't for God's grace and mercy, our story would be much different. The just know that God loves people who are hurting, regardless of how they talk or look or smell or act. Just people express genuine sympathy and concern for other people, including taking action to meet their needs and relieve their suffering. As Micah noted, we must be humble. Most of us can't claim responsibility for the blessings we enjoy. Maybe they're the compounded interest of our parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents who worked so hard to give us the life we now enjoy. We've been afforded so many great opportunities that others may not have given. And even if we have made good choices in life, those were often a result of biblical teaching we received during our formative years, not just from how good we are automatically. We should remember the words of Jesus in Luke 12, verse 48, Unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. One of these requirements is showing mercy, showing grace, showing compassion to those who have not enjoyed the same blessings we have and blessing them. Here's an activity, and you may need to pause the podcast to do it. Make a list of blessings you've received because of somebody else's sacrifices. And how can you keep that cycle going and sustain that cycle of blessing where somebody has blessed you and you can bless others? A couple of years ago, the lovely Andrea had compiled a journal and she wanted to write down a thousand things over the course, I believe, of a year that she was thankful for. And they, some of them were, were massive things. Thank God he filled her with the Spirit. Thank God he called her into ministry. Thank God for our house, our family. Some of them were little things. Thank God for which frozen custard. But she had started to journal these things for which she was thankful. And it was so amazing that over the course of that year, she had far exceeded a thousand things to be thankful for. We truly are blessed. And many of those blessings really do come from the hands and the hard work of other people. Now, this brings us all full circle back to that temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus entered the temple precincts and he confronted the merchants and money changers and he directly assailed the most powerful religious family in Jerusalem. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Annas, the son of Sethi, had been appointed high priest by the Roman governor in around A.D. 6 or 7, and he served until he was deposed in A.D. 15. But he used his time in office to build a thriving, booming business that came to be known as the booths or the bazaars of the son of Annas. All Annas's five sons followed their father in the office of high priest. The booths of Annas had a monopoly on the sale of sacrifices, and they conducted a lucrative trade in the court of the Gentiles. They had turned the house of God into a flea market. But when Jesus cleansed the temple, Annas felt that sting in his wallet, and he would not let Jesus get away with that. Annas, Caiaphas, the rest of their cartel, they were wicked men who did not mind exploiting worshipers for personal gain, people who just wanted to get close to God but couldn't because these greedy religious leaders charged way too much. Jesus didn't share that attitude. He quoted Isaiah 56 verse 7 and reaffirmed that God intended his house to be a place for all nations. Mark 11 verse 17. 
Jesus didn't abuse anybody, but he wasn't afraid to confront them either. He didn't shy away from confronting those who refused to repent or whose actions kept people from getting closer to God. Jesus fought on behalf of those who were excluded and marginalized to make sure they had access to God. Jesus insisted his house would be called a house of prayer, which illustrates there can be no true justice without prayer. We can't even know what justice is until we have first sought God. Without prayer, our pursuit of justice will be corrupt. Even today, some demands for justice are little more than a thinly veiled desire for revenge. True justice is not making somebody else suffer payback for our own hardships. Our parents and grandparents have often taught us that two wrongs don't make a right. If we're not spirit-led, though, human passion and zeal can pervert even the best intention. We need to pray if we're to have God's perspective on and God's passion for justice. If we don't pray, we might be tempted to sweep injustice under the rug, especially if those injustices did not impact us directly. But pursuing true justice, it can be difficult. It can be painful. It often seems it's easier to ignore problems than dealing with them. Pursuing justice is rarely convenient and often makes people very uncomfortable. It can cause misunderstandings. That's why we need to pray. Because the Holy Spirit will give us the desire to deal with injustices and give us the wisdom to resolve them in a godly manner. Here's another question. Why is prayer so important to the work of true justice? Here's another question. How should the church respond to injustice in our world? Injustice in our world is about as common as a dollar general in a small town. So if there's so much injustice, we must begin acknowledging our past. God warned Israel they would enjoy the blessings that he had prepared for them when they finally entered the promised land, but they would need to routinely remember where they came from. That exercise was to continually remind the people of Israel to show compassion to and administer justice on behalf of the foreigner and the less fortunate. Sadly, though, Israel soon forgot this critical lesson. We one as Pentecostals are just a few generations removed from worshiping Jesus under brush harbors while playing dodgeball with rotten fruit and rotten tomatoes, which some think is a fruit, some is a vegetable. That's a, another debate for a different podcast. But we're not that far removed from being persecuted just because we were Pentecostal. We were mocked as holy rollers. We were accused of even being devil-possessed and insane. And many early Pentecostals were poor, uneducated, lacked any social standing. But God's wonderful power more than made up for their lack of prestige. Entire families were forever changed by this Holy Spirit Pentecostal experience. And as the years have passed, those brush harbors have been replaced by state-of-the-art church facilities featuring the latest tech and innovations. People on the pews went to college and landed better-paying jobs and careers. And you can begin to see that upward shift in the parking lot as nicer cars, newer cars, started to pull onto those nicer church campuses. And many Pentecostals have been highly and widely respected in the community. And we certainly celebrate advancement, but we must never forget where we came from. We cannot turn our backs on the persecuted, the disadvantaged, the ridiculed. Not so, because that was in our not-so-distant past. With God's help, we must stay humble. Our churches must be people who come together in places where everybody can find love and compassion. 
regardless of ethnicity, social status, economic resources, how educated, how uneducated, how rich, how poor. God does not show favoritism, neither can we. He is a God of justice, and we must imitate him by giving the people who have been wronged the love and support they are due. One more question. How does remembering our past ensure we keep a proper perspective of God's love for other people? Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Church history includes many examples of men and women who dedicated their lives to ministering to the less fortunate, to the hurting, to the abused. A.B. Simpson, a Canadian-born Presbyterian pastor and theologian, was one such person. Simpson's story inspires anybody who takes Jesus' command to minister to the least of these seriously. He graduated from Knox College in Toronto, Ontario, and Simpson began serving in a series of pastorates. He served first in Hamilton, Ontario, where my good dear friend Adam Shaw and his family serve as pastor in the church. Then he pastored in Louisville, Kentucky, not to be confused with Louisville or Louisville. Then finally, in 1880, he was called to serve as pastor of 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. It was a prestigious post, annual salary of $5,000. Adjusted for inflation, that would be about a six-figure salary today. Immigrants were flooding into New York City in those early 1880s, and Simpson had a burden to minister to these new arrivals. Most of them were poor. They've not yet adopted American customs. He was an immigrant himself, undoubtedly felt sympathy for their situation, but when he tried to add approximately 100 Italian immigrants to the rolls at 13th Street Presbyterian Church, the affluent church leaders refused to let them join. Not in our church, no siree, not here. They were worried that allowing these poor immigrants to become part of their congregation would discourage their rich friends and their neighbors from joining the church. Simpson was disgusted. Even the leaders had that same attitude. He was so disgusted, he quit the pastorate. He founded Gospel Tabernacle, a church in the heart of the city where all the poor, homeless, sick, and displaced would be welcome. You can find that quote at cmalliance.org. His passion for reaching the world only continued to grow. Simpson dreamed of serving as a missionary in China, but when that didn't work out, he turned his attention to other evangelistic pursuits. He published a missions magazine and opened a college to train missions workers. In 1887, he founded what would become known as the Christian and Missionary Alliance, a missions organization that still operates today. Is the church a comfortable place where only people just like us are welcome? Or do we have room for the hurting and the outcasts, the people nobody else wants? Are we willing to love and serve those who have faced injustice and abuse at the hands of this world and even at the hands of other churches? To what lengths are we willing to go to make this happen? How we answer that question may determine how much we really want to be like Jesus. And I want to pray today for God to help us to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. And also I'd like to pray for God to give us the courage to help us to relieve others' suffering whenever we're able to do so. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the privilege you have given us, the blessings you have given us, and they are abundant. You've been so good to us. You've given us so much materially. You've given us so much by way of relationships. I pray, Lord, help us to live a life of justice, mercy, humility. Help us to live a life like Micah prescribed, like you prescribed through Micah. We should live to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. 
not to be arrogant, neither to turn our heart off or away from people who need your help. Help us, Lord, I pray, to minister to them, to show mercy to them, to walk humbly among and with them, and give us courage whenever we can make a difference. God, give us courage to make a difference. Put somebody on our heart today we can bless. Perhaps somebody in our church family or somebody in our community who needs help, put them on our hearts today, God, so we can minister to them and bless them as so many have come along and blessed us. I pray it. I thank you for it. We want to honor you. I ask you to help us to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Be sure to click subscribe. Be sure to click share so you won't ever have to miss an episode and neither will any of your friends. I've got good news for you. We've got some wonderful resources. And if you head over to PentecostalPublishing.com where you can get all those resources, you can use promo code, here you go, get ready, GWFL10, the number 10, 10. GWFL10 will give you 10% off at checkout on your entire order. If you've not used that promo code before, it's a one-time use promo code for each individual user. But if you've not used it before, use it. Save 10% off your entire order. And that could be on Bibles, Bible studies, books, devotionals, curriculum, like God's Word for Life. You can use all of that, music, and much, much more at PentecostalPublishing.com. That is the wrap for this winter quarter. I'm happy to say that next week's episode will begin the spring quarter. Let's hope the weather follows the curriculum and we start to see more spring weather than winter weather. I want to share with you a brand new series known as The Parables of Jesus. And our very first episode is called The Two Debtors. It looks like debtors, but that's English for you. The Two Debtors. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.